good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll preview a world premiere opera that dives into the incredible life and tragic death of trailblazing computer scientist Alan Turing. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review Steppenwolf Theater's new production, Describe the Night. Later in the show, I'll sit down with the local director behind an intriguing new production that explores the different sides of an ongoing debate regarding the right to be forgotten. And we'll hear about a new exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry that illuminates the history of Pompeii. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. An opera 10 years in the making is set to make its much-anticipated world premiere at the Harris Theater later this week. Chicago Opera Theater is presenting The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing. The English-language opera tells the fascinating story of pioneering British mathematician and computer scientist Alan Turing. Considered by many to be one of the founding fathers of modern-day computing, Turing was also a war hero for his work in decoding Nazi communications during World War II. However, because of the top-secret nature of his work, his sexuality, and his untimely death at the age of 41, a lot of Turing's accomplishments weren't recognized properly for decades. Ten years ago, when this opera project began, there wasn't a lot of public awareness of Turing's name. In 2014, a high-profile Hollywood film shed more light on his wartime efforts. The Imitation Game was nominated for eight Oscars, including Best Picture. At that point, librettist David Simpatico and composer Justine Chen were already a couple of years into working on an opera about Turing. I recently caught up with Simpatico and Chen as the final rehearsals for The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing were taking place at the Studebaker Theater in Chicago. The origins of this project can be traced back to an American Lyric Theater workshop led by Larry Edelson over 10 years ago. There's a training program, the composer-librettist development program. They gather writers and composers to train them to write for the opera. And that's where they pulled me in from playwriting. And Justine was a composer that was also in the program. So she and I worked a few, you do lots of different projects throughout the year as you're learning different elements of how to construct an opera. And uh, Larry really loved what we did. And then a year after we graduated and finished, he came back to us and said, I want to uh, commission an opera from you. What do you want to do? And so I, I came up with like eight ideas. And one of them was about Turing. And at that time, it was called The Apple. We got to know each other, each other's working styles, each other's communication styles. And we got to see each other's work kind of progressively, you know, through the year. And then when David presented the story of Turing, Larry said, that's a perfect Justine David opera. And so we started working on it. I really knew very little about Alan Turing at that time. That's changed over the past decade. Simpatico says it's been a long journey. 
from there, we, we used to be called the Turing Project because we didn't have a really a better name for it. And we, we got our first workshop in 2013. And then we had one in 2015. And then we had one in 2019. And then the pandemic came. And Chicago Opera, Chicago Opera did the 2019 orchestral workshop, which was pivotal in the future of this piece because we could hear everything. It was the first time I actually heard everything in Justine's head, you know, because she works on so many different levels with all these different players and singers that when you hear it for the first time, you're like, holy moly, that's the world that we're living in. And, um, you know, Chicago Opera Theater stayed with us and, and supported us and brought us back out for this full production. You know, it's like Brigadoon. Every 10 years, we, we come out of the mist. So I did want to go back just to set the stage. If we think back to 2012, so that was even before the, the Hollywood movie, The Imitation Game, oh, yeah. came out. So was Alan Turing just a story you were familiar with? Well, I didn't know. I didn't know who Alan Turing was. Oddly enough, I was talking with a friend, an actor, Ned Van Zandt, who's a terrific actor, and he was playing with the idea. He said, oh, David, you did this. You should write a one-man show for me. It was about Alan Turing. I said, who's Alan Turing? He said, oh, he's a this, this, this. You should check it out, his story. And I started investigating. I said, oh, oh, this is interesting. And then, like a week later, my friend Charles Petzold, uh, who's a, a brilliant um, writer about computers, he wrote a book called The Annotated Turing. Okay. And he sent me this book out of the blue. And I was like, and I read it, and I thought, well, this is a sign. The universe is saying, this is what we should do. And so it went from an idea for a one-man show to a, a grand opera. Because it just, it's life and death, you know, and it's mythic and it's human. And I thought, well, this is, if this is an opera, I'm not sure what is. Simpatico says there's something undeniably compelling about Turing's story. A lot of people in 2012 didn't know who Alan Turing was. He was wiped out from the annals of history, you know, because he was vowed to secrecy, so he was never allowed to say what he did in the, during the war and breaking the Enigma Code. And, uh, and because he was criminalized, for gross indecency, you know, he was sentenced to chemical castration for two years. He was dismissed from official records. And then I think in 2012, 2013, they, uh, Parliament started, I think it was maybe in 20, 2009, but yeah. they, it took a while for them to really get him exonerated. And then that led to more information. So then I started reading all these books about Turing, which just, there's a finite amount of facts in a, a, a guy's life. He lived to 41. So I knew that I just wanted to gather the facts and then put them into my imagination and into my heart. We never set out to do a documentary. It's not a biography of him. It's biographical, but we inject fantasy, we inject conjecture, we inject emotional back and forth in time, we flip back and forth in shards of time and imagination. And in fact, the last scene, which is the, the deaths of Alan Turing, we explore uh, four variations on and theories about his death. And these are theories, three of them are exist. And that's um, the theory that he committed suicide by eating a cyanide 
laced apple. And then there was uh, one that was an accident that he inhaled that cyanide while he was gold plating in his kitchen. He had this really messy kitchen lab with all these poisons and the jellies and the toast. And, and then there was the other one that he was assassinated by the government because this post-World War II, he was privy to the deepest security secrets of several world powers. United States, Britain, Russia, and in the early 50s, when he was arrested for being gay, for having an affair with this man, he couldn't, he was bound, forbidden to speak of his war effort, what what his record was. So he was really uh, summarily punished and dismissed. So the last uh, version of his death that we came up with was Transfiguration, which was uploading his soul to the binary universe, uh, the computer, the digital universe, I guess. And for me, that feels like the most operatic. Mm. You know, it's like uh, Brunhilde ascending <laughs> to Valhalla. It's the transmigration of the soul. And that's why we call it a historic, a fantasia of historic proportions. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking with the creatives behind the new opera, The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing, which is making its world premiere in Chicago this week. Librettist David Simpatico and composer Justine Chen have worked closely over the past decade on the project. We talk, 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 talk. We talk about it, and then I make an outline, a detailed outline, scene by scene, beat by beat within the scenes. And I discussed that with Justine, and we go back and forth, and she has a lot of input. At the same time, though, she would also be making a musical outline, saying, well, what instruments, what sound, what, what's the feel of each scene? How am I going to explore that? What do I need? And then I went and wrote a first draft, and then we sat down for a month, going back and forth over the draft, beating it out, cutting this, changing this, I need this, I need this, this doesn't make sense. Oh my God, this is amazing. With David, this was extremely collaborative. David came up with the structure. I mean, and also with um, American Lyric Theater, they were the ones who commissioned and nurtured the various uh, stages of the work. So we had multiple workshops. With each um, iteration, we were always just kind of negotiating who are these characters? How do they play with each other? How do they come off in in each of the... um, in each of the scenes and then and then also about like the balance of the drama where's the drama heading um and then the pacing getting it there too so there's a lot of you know some some of it can be david's purview and some of it is music purview how we shape the moment and how the how the moment moves in time because that's a pacing is a big deal in opera it's a really complicated story that you want to tell simply but it's complicated. And as my friend Will Todd, who's a, a British composer, I said, well, how long is this gonna take? It's like my first opera. I'm like, how long is it? He says it takes as long as it takes. Stay with it. Mm-hmm. So I just stayed with it, stayed with it. The quality of the work and the quality of working with Justine and her music is, I, I really think her music is breathtaking. Let's listen to a clip. This is from the 2019 Chicago Opera Theater Orchestral Workshop.
influences um, on the on the sound world of the opera. A lot of it has to do with all of our memories are tied in with time. So I think that we're trying to evoke many different time, time periods. One of the time periods we're trying to evoke is kind of now. Now being the age of the internet, and so like the sound of like data streaming, that is the sound that I glommed onto for, for that, for the now, also for the, the present, kind of the chorus sound is of now, is of like internet chatter. There are bits of the Walt Disney sound world, I think of like Snow White, the orchestration of the time and the, the use of the chorus in those, in those earlier films. And then there's also like during the war, like there's wartime music for that scene. David is really great at creating these environments. It's in Hut 8, which is Butch Lake Park, which is where they did all the code breaking. He said that the the atmosphere was so jovial. It was so much fun. And I thought, wartime fun. Andrew's sisters. So that's the sound. Like a lot of the sound of that scene is that. So yeah, when you say Andrew's sisters, I think little bugle boy. There's yeah, like horn, uh-huh, horns yeah. uh, for like the data streams. Do you mind sharing? Oh, How does that come to life? So a lot of it is like um, kind of more, it's like a kind of motoric like very kind of minimalist repetition, but also like extremely rhythmic and like uh, lots of words. Yeah, I think the chorus is chatting sounds, whispering, like really the sounds enunciating the the words. The words are very important in these moments. Very rhythmic speech. And then every now and then you hear like words come out sung in the texture. So it's like, it's like beams of light, I want to say in the, in that, in the moments of the chatter. Justine just has such an incredible imagination. This is Lydia Yankovskaya, Chicago Opera Theater's music director and the conductor of the world premiere production of The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing. And she comes up with such beautiful, but also very poignant sound worlds that transport you not only into Alan's life and emotional world, but also into this... um, imaginary world of the computer and of the kind of metaverse, but Justine brings the philosophical idea of computing, of AI, into her the musical world. Yankovskaya was instrumental in bringing the touring opera to Chicago. I've been there since one of the very early piano vocal workshops, so I've also seen it go through many, many different iterations and changes. And uh, some years into the opera's development, uh, once I became music director at COT, I brought it to Chicago Opera Theater in a collaboration where we featured the orchestral workshop of the opera, or kind of the final development process. And of course, now we are, um, I'm thrilled that we can now finally present the world premiere. A lot has changed in the decades since this project began. Sympatico believes the timing is perfect and Turing's story is as relevant as ever. I will say this, uh, Imitation Game, the movie, uh, people said, uh, was that 2015, 2014? And they were like, oh no, I was like, are you kidding? I'm so glad that they came out with the Imitation Game because I'm like, I felt like they built my audience. Because before that movie, he really was not known. He was named, they had a, a roundabout in England named after him at that point, and that was it. Okay. I'm like, he deserves more than that. And so, Imitation Game, which is a very well-made movie, really helped promulgate his name. Um, and so, yeah, that's great. Bring him into the social consciousness. 
you know, and, and now I look at this and I say, yeah, this opera is right, is exactly speaking to our time right now because as a, as a gay man uh, in the arts, I'm completely aware of the number of don't say gay bills that are being legislated to deny the existence of homosexuals. I'm like, how is this possible? So if, in case you forget, it is 1952. 1950, right? 1952. That's not a long time ago. So this can happen again. So I'm like, yeah, this is, let's get this out here. Let's, hopefully, if we can get part of the, our culture of society talking about this and saying, look what we did. If we can do it a ham, we don't have a chance if we don't speak up and, and make this change. So for whatever we're, whatever we can contribute to that, I hope it has an effect. I hope I hope people respond to it and say, "Oh, wait a minute! No, let's get, let's do something about this. Let's prevent it from happening again, because it can happen like that." I don't want to be overly dramatic, but we are talking about opera. <laughs> you know, here we are, ten years later, over ten years. Here we are, a few weeks from opening night of the world premiere. What are you feeling? We had um, a little presentation yesterday, and we had the first thing through with the the chorus and all the principals and we had some donors come and some people in the room and I and we had to talk and I really feel like I've been waiting 10 years to be in the room with these people that everyone involved in this production uh, they're outstanding artists creatives and they're all working to the top of their ability and like this was worth waiting for I can't, I can't, as Will Todd would say, it takes how long it takes, so. So on opening night, butterflies? Huge butterflies! <laughs> <laughs> oh God, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm not there yet, I'm not worried, I'm just trying to get through the rehearsals. Chen says there's definitely a sense of excitement to see something that she's worked on so long finally come to life. So many emotions. Yeah, I'm really glad that these rehearsals um, are taking up my time because I flew into Chicago on Sunday. I, like the day before I left, I started to, to feel a little bit nervous. Maybe butterflies, like, whoa, this is happening. Because if, if you, it's been 10 years, it's been so long, it felt like it was never going to happen. Even though we had so many workshops, it just felt like work, 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 and then never, are we ever gonna see it? And but like, like the, it's happening, and like, are we, are we really gonna see it? It's still, it feels unreal, but it's so, so lovely. Yeah, seeing the costumes, that's, I've never seen costumes for my shows, but this is my very first big opera, and I'm really so delighted and so excited, and I'm so glad it's here in Chicago, which is such a beautiful place to be anyway. That's Justine Chen. She's the composer of The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing. We also heard from librettist David Simpatico. The Chicago Opera Theater world premiere will be presented twice this week, Thursday, March 23rd, and Saturday, March 25th at the Harris Theater. You can find more information at chicagooperatheater.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every week right here on WDCB, thank you. Remember, you can also visit the program's website, theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want. 
plus pictures that go along with all the features you hear on the show. And if you have a question, comment, or suggestion about the show, you can find my contact info there. My email is gzydek at wdcb.org, or find me on Instagram or Twitter with the handle at onairgary. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Back in the spring of 2018, Rajiv Joseph won a Best New American Play Obie Award for Describe the Night. Now, five years later, the work is getting its Chicago premiere at Steppenwolf Theater. The play, which takes a closer look at Russian political history, was written and first presented long before Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And it sounds as if Describe the Night doesn't lack for ambition and follows multiple characters over a nine-decade period of time that begins in 1920. Jonathan, for listeners and theater fans familiar with Joseph's work, it sounds like Describe the Night is quite a bit different from his last play that premiered at Steppenwolf, King James. Indeed, indeed. And well, people who go to Steppenwolf have seen several of uh, Rajiv Joseph's plays, because Rajiv Joseph is now a member of the Steppenwolf Ensemble. And we've seen things like the guards at the Taj and stuff like that. But the last one, uh, which was uh, two or three years ago, was King James, about LeBron James and basketball in Cleveland, which is where... Rajiv Joseph was born and raised. It was a very entertaining play, but it was pretty shallow, pretty sitcom sort of stuff. Describe the Night, on the other hand, has a depth and seriousness of purpose, as most of, of Joseph's earlier plays have, too. And I also need to add, it also is entertaining. It is richly and warmly acted by a wonderful cast. Uh, most of the cast, as well as the director, Austin Pendleton and Rob G. Joseph, are Steppenwolf Ensemble members, and uh, the teamwork shows. Even though they don't individually often get you know, work together that often, but there is a collective sensibility, and it really shows in this production. As you noted, it takes place over a period of 90 years, 1920 to 2010, and it's a complex, multi-generational story. Uh, set against the history of the Soviet Union and and Russia, and it uses real events at its jump, as its jumping off places, notably the Polish-Soviet War of the early 1920s, and then an infamous 2010 plane crash in Smolensk, Russia, which killed the president of Poland, his wife, and many top Polish officials. But it's not about those events; rather, it's about you know fictional folks. The, characters of the play, who are caught up in these events, people who are related but don't know it, relationships which are fractured by politics, and above all, what constitutes truth in a society with the, with the power to quite literally rewrite the truth at will. Carrie, you know, I, I walked summation? out, I, I think it's a very fair summation, I walked out thinking that Pretty much every critic was going to uh, land on the adjective that I, I found immediately, which is the partian. Um, I do think, and not to say that it's in any way derivative of Tom Stoppard, but I found some parallels 
particularly with Arcadia. If you know Stoppard, obviously he also writes plays that span decades or even centuries. Often there's an object that is not always thoroughly understood. It's import. Uh, people read into it different things. Here, that would be the diary of Isaac Babel, who is a real uh, Soviet Jewish journalist who we meet in 1920. He is covering the, the, the Polish-Russian war that you mentioned, and he is carrying this leather-bound journal. Uh, it's sort of like his reports from the front are devoid of his feelings. They are very by the book, but in the book, he keeps his own personal insights. And so that kind of sets up some of the divide of what you're talking about, I think, a little bit, Jonathan, with the personal, the political, the, uh, you know, the, the relationships and how they fit into this larger political structure. And this book, you know, kind of is a recurring object throughout, which is also something we saw in Arcadia. There's an exercise book that pops up in different, you know, different points, and people are trying to understand what it means. And like Stoppard, uh, you know, who has also written about totalitarianism, uh, I was thinking notably in Rock and Roll, which took, you know, which was uh, about the Velvet Revolution in Prague Spring in Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. Um, there is this this air of how far will you go for your expressions? What will you do to def- you know defend your work when there's a totalitarian regime that does not like free thinkers, that does not like artists? Um, I-, I just found this play absolutely exhilarating. I must say. Um, it, it takes some. It takes some paying attention to, but it's not a slog. It doesn't. It never felt to me didactic. I absolutely agree with you, Jonathan. That under Austin Pendleton's direction, this ensemble, which features people I've not seen at least on several stages in a while, such as Sally Murphy, uh, really, really delivers. Um, it, it, it's smart, but it's not. It's not self-conscious and smarty pants about what it's trying to say. I think there's a real beating heart to it, and that, for me, is what really made it. Um, you know, quite quite especially quite a special event yeah. for me, I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Tom Stoppard, brilliant, brilliant playwright, but sometimes he is a rather self-consciously intellectual in his work, and this play is not that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rajiv Joseph, as you noted, completely uh, uh, is able to uh, escape that. And, and you know, describe the night is uh, this diary. As you said, it's kind of a touchstone throughout mm-hmm. the play for uh, the three generations of characters. And it represents, if you will, the power of imagination, uh, of storytelling, and who specifically gets to tell the story. And a lot of the actual events revolve around that. You know, one thing that was interesting to me is that the play appears to be realistic, but it isn't completely so. Uh, right. There are elements almost of magic realism that creep in. There's a fortune-telling. There are hallucinations. There are impossible coincidences. There are dead people who are not dead. Uh, <laughs> and at its center are these two old Bolshevik com- comrades, as you noted, one a Jewish writer who is a war correspondent, and the other a Soviet intelligence chief, and uh, the fictional creation of Rajiv Joseph, the intelligence chief wife, who ends up having relationships with both of these men. Right. The intelligence chief, I don't want to give too much away, right. but the intelligence chief himself, in turn, as an old man, mentors an ambitious young agent who eventually replaces him and becomes the president of Russia. <laughs> He's nicknamed Vova. 
and this figure clearly is meant to be right. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. But he, he is just as lost as the others are with regard to the truth of the situation in which they yeah. find themselves. Yeah. I, I, one, another thing that I found myself hitting upon, I don't know how many of our listeners would be familiar with the 1980s film Brazil by Terry Gilliam, which is sort of a surrealist <laughs> look at totalitarianism. And there's one scene in particular um, where the old agent, as you read, played by Yasin Pankov, as you mentioned, Jonathan, is showing the new his his new trainee just how far back the records go, and he pulls out this ludicrously long file drawer, which apparently has notes and records on everybody. <laughs> it goes across like half the length of the stage, and it's a, it's a very funny visual joke. But it's not just a visual joke. It does yeah. kind of show this is the timeline of history. This is how long we've been keeping track of people. Um, yeah. And I think that that's, yeah, and I agree with you that the, the character that's obviously the stand-in for Putin, you know, he's not one-dimensional. I mean, he's he's terrifying. And I would say there are scary things in this play, and it obviously talks about a great deal of violence, but it's more talked about. We don't actually see the violence, I think, the violence is about what happens to the words. There's another scene earlier when uh, Pankov's agent is meeting with Babel, who has started to fall afoul of the Soviet authorities, and he has his record, and he's just changing things. And I think he, he pulls out a magic marker, and he I think the line is, um, you know, something like, behold the black magic marker, the most useful tool in all of communism. And there's just something yes. about this wall of black redacted, you know, type. Uh, there's, and I, again, I don't want to give too much away either, but there's also a scene later where the violence that is committed against language, against writing, just just left a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. Um, yeah. and this play is almost, you know, it's what was about two hours 45, Jonathan, I think. Which, well, with, you know, an, with an intermission. With about intermission. forty, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, so not as long as some stopper plays or other pieces, but... I, I did not feel like there was any dead air at all. There was not a point at which I wasn't engaged, really interested in seeing what was coming next. Some of the twists, maybe I sort of saw, but even then, they didn't land with me in a way that was pat. And again, yeah. I, I, I credit that to not just Joseph's writing, but also to Pendleton's direction. Obviously, Austin Pendleton should not need an introduction. He's been directing for decades. Um and also, and again, in the cast, I would like to mention particularly Caroline Neff, who is one of the early, uh, newer members of the ensemble. She plays a journalist in the 2010 storyline about the plane crash, um, who, and she's just sort of this, uh, she calls herself a fluffy human interest reporter, but she's sort of caught up in this, in this huge historic event. And as often happens with people who are caught up in these events, not expecting to be, she has to decide how she is going to respond to it. And that really resonated with me. I've been a Caroline Neff fan for a while. And, you know, she she has this way of playing, you know, these women who are absolutely honest about their limitations, but also absolutely honest about what they will and will not put up with from other people. And yeah. that really, this role, I think, really speaks to those strengths in her yeah. as an actor. I think all the performances in Describe the Night are wonderful. Okay. And I, I particularly need to praise that old veteran, Yasin Piankov. Absolutely. For his compelling and sly work as Nikolai, the old intelligence chief, whom he portrays as a man when we first see him in his 20s. And then in the later scenes as a man in his 90s. And everything he does is beautifully understated, including the physical work for the characters. Understated, but always just enough. Mm -hmm. um, I also, you already mentioned Sally Murphy, who we've not seen on the Steppenwolf stage in a while. 
She plays Nikolai's wife and the writer Isaac Babel's lover, and also James Vincent Meredith, who's been absent a good long while from the Steppenwolf stage, and he plays the writer Isaac. Um, and Glenn Davis, who is currently co-artistic director of Steppenwolf Theater, plays Vova, the, the forceful young yeah. operatic on the make. Right, uh, and, and, and Davis was also in King James, so he clearly has facility yeah. With, yeah. with several different iterations of Rajiv Joseph's yeah. world. Yeah, I was going to say all of the cast, and there are one or two we haven't mentioned, all of them are effective and memorable. And I think the entire production is, it's, it's simply but handsomely and richly designed and certainly beautifully staged, smoothly staged by... Uh, by Austin Pendleton. I would say this production, I think, for me, of the productions I've seen in this new ensemble theater, which is the In the Round space that Steppenwolf put up in the last couple of years, I think this is maybe the most successful use of the space I've seen. It's very spare, um, but I, I think that spareness really allows the intensity of the performances to come through. And for a play that is in some ways about you know, surveillance and watching each other, <laughs> um, to have this in the round, sort of reinforces that sense of when do we share a story, when are we eavesdropping, what are we supposed to hear, what are, you know, I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that definitely works for me very well. I think this works better in that setting than it would in a proscenium. I think so. I, I, I like this. Uh, I've seen three productions now in the new space, and I agree that this is uh, the most successful of the three of them. You know, when I was in an undergraduate, I worked in a, a smaller arena theater, but a theater with audience on all sides. And when the audience is all around you, you really have to act, including with your back. So you have to act with your your full physical being right. when you're working in an, in the round and arena space. No, no we uh, haven't. I don't want to give anything away, but I hope that people won't be put off by the idea of eating leech soup because that appears, <laughs> apparently that is a fictional element, but, you know, uh, that might be the one sort of gut-twisting thing that you need to prepare yourself. <laughs> well, maybe it's fictional for you. <laughs> maybe so. Yeah. I, I do not. I, I do not question your culinary proclivities, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, Describe the night is a really good night out at theater. Uh, yeah. You know, come the intermission, I have to tell you, Carrie, I had no idea where the play was headed. So it was a surprise to me, and I'm quite sure it's going to be surprising to audiences who see it also. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, it's a good combination of hitting head and heart, I think, and that's that's hard to do. And you know, God bless Steppenwolf for for putting this this show on. And I think it, you know, at the time, obviously, it's when Joseph wrote it, the invasion, as you mentioned, Gary, the invasion of Ukraine hadn't happened. But there's lots to contemplate about. You know, who cre- who creates our narratives? Who controls the news? You know, um, what will people in power do to hang on to that power? And what sacrifices are ordinary people willing to make to try to counter that? So it's it's all very very timely. And again, I keep hitting on exhilarating. It's epic, but not exhausting. I didn't walk out feeling wrung out. I walked out feeling like I my head is buzzing with so many ideas and so many impressions right now and that's you can't ask for a better night out at theater than that absolutely steppenwolf's describe the night continues and the company's in the round space through april 9th gary jonathan thanks so much oh you're, you're welcome gary most welcome most welcome <laughs>
I'm Gary Zydek. This is the art section. Should a mistake that someone makes when they're 17 haunt them for the rest of their life? It obviously depends on the mistake and how said infraction is affecting their life. The new play Right to be Forgotten dives into the gray area of perpetual public shaming in the internet age. It comes from Brooklyn-based playwright Sharon Rothstein and is getting its Chicago premiere at Raven Theater. In the play, a man in his late 20s is finding it hard to escape a cringy incident that he was a part of 10 years prior. His situation is the jumping-off point for a larger discussion about quote-unquote right-to-be-forgotten legislation that's been passed in some European countries that allows people to request certain things be scrubbed from the internet. Raven Theater's production of Right to Be Forgotten is directed by Sarah Gittenstein. I recently caught up with the Evanston-based director to talk about the complicated nature of any discussion regarding free speech and the internet. What initially drew you to this project? The original director was Cody Essel. He got a job and he called me in November and asked if I was interested in doing the play and as we were just discussing, I have very young children, so when I pick a project or I do a project, I have to be like excited about it just because it's so hard to be away from the kids for that long and to figure it out. We don't have family around. So I was like, let me read the play. And I read it, and I was just immediately struck by the timeliness of it and the way with which Sharon Rothstein writes is so compelling and nuanced, and the characters, their archetypes are very human, and I just couldn't say no. So that was really exciting to me. And I I also find the topic of how the internet is policed and the pace with which it's evolving and yet how little we understand the lasting effects of it, particularly on younger generations. Like I find that conversation really important and compelling and like urgent. So I felt this play tackled all of those in a really articulate way. And right to be forgotten, audiences meet Daryl, a young man desperate to escape some of his teenage mistakes. So Daryl Lark, the play starts with him on a blind date, and he's actually given another name, and it's going really well. And But he has to eventually tell her that, because like everyone does, she's going to leave this date and Google him. And he's like, when you Google me, you're going to find out all this information, which is that 10 years ago he had followed a girl in high school who he had a crush on and made her really uncomfortable and someone started a blog about what he did which ended up being turning into a hashtag using his name lurking lark Mm. about essentially that hashtag representing all women that had been either followed or made to feel like uncomfortable by a man or any sort of kind of predatory behavior. And so his name started being associated with that. And then the blog kind of blew up. And as a result, there was false information, basically lies, but then some there are some truths to what he did. And now 10 years later, he's graduating from with a PhD and he wants to get a job and he wants to get married. And You can see how it affects this girl on the date just to hear about what happened. So he goes through the process of seeing, can we adapt the right to be forgotten in in Michigan, where he is, because it had been passed in California. And so he hires a tech lawyer uh, named Marta Lee to represent him and to try to go after the tech companies uh, to have his name erased from search engines. And then the political drama ensues. 
If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Sarah Gittenstein. She's the director of Raven Theater's new production, Right to be Forgotten. A lot of gray area because I think some people might come to it with, uh, I'd like to Google this person I went on a date with. And you kind of alluded to it, like why you were interested in this. But do you have like a personal feeling about some of these topics? Uh, I mean, just like the play, it's so gray and it's so muddy. We do live in a country with the right to free speech, which is like the main argument against right to be forgotten because one of the lines in the play from an attorney from the opposing side, from a lobbyist, is the answer to free speech is more free speech. So what happens if you do pass the right to be forgotten? How do you know who's getting to decide what is and isn't true and what gets to be taken off the internet? Because there are some things that we do want to know. And so for me, I mean, I just think it's so complicated because there's this other side of the argument about children and people under under 17, so minors, putting things out onto the internet, out into the world in the way that, and I will age myself, that mm-hmm. as a kid I did, I made, but I didn't have the internet. Mm. So I made all these mistakes and I said all these things that aren't permanent, that no one knows about really because I was allowed to explore that part and a lot of kids of my generation were allowed to and generations older than us were allowed to make mistakes and that is key to developing as a human so what about these these kids that it's there forever and how do we manage that and also how do you explain that concept to someone so young that what you're putting out there will be with you forever that is a really complex concept for kids to understand and it's nerve-wracking that we're documenting all of that and we have no idea how to police it so for me i don't know where i stand because again like sharon proposes in the play it's very muddy and it's very complicated and you want to deal with it on a case-by-case basis but how when we talk about things in the gray area, we want to like get into the nuances, but then with something like that, gigantic in scope, it's like if with every every situation, would we have like a council? But one of the things I read in the uh, the press materials was that the European Union, some countries had, had adopted a, a mm-hmm. piece of legislation that does provide some type of help. Yeah. The European, so the EU, the UK, the Philippines, um, it also, uh, it was, a ballot proposition that was passed in California, but it's also a very liberal state, so it's it's probably easier for it to get passed there. So yes, they have adopted the right to be forgotten there. And I think Virginia as well. Not that you're like a, a, an expert in this, but how would it work? Okay. <laughs> so that part right. you might not want to put in there. But from your understanding, it's kind of like you would be able to scrub certain things? Yes. So you would be able to have either your name erased from search engines, or you can ask for specific words with your name. So like Daryl talks about it, like he would, he would request his, he could ask for specific sites to be taken down that have his name, or he could ask for his name associated with words. So pervert, creep. Uh, anything like that you can so if you googled Daryl Lark pervert it would be erased you wouldn't be able to find anything associated with that let's listen to a a clip from right to be forgotten in this early scene Daryl is on a first date so I know this is just a coffee or whatever but you're great no no you're so great Come on, you are it's you you're just really easy no you you listen which is like 
In my line of work, you don't have to talk much, so... You must be, like, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Anyone can get into a PhD. It's just finishing it that's... It helps if you're a little antisocial. You don't seem antisocial to me. That might be the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but because you're great, because I haven't had a date go this well, and, well, if I'm being honest... Be honest. It's been... Me too. <laughs> So I just have to tell you that my name isn't really Arthur. Oh, okay. okay. Arthur Rimbaud, it's not my real name. It's just your online name, your dating name or something? Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, no. But also, I didn't want to give you my real name because if I gave you my real name, you'd Google me. I'd Google you. And then you'd never go out with me. I'm sure that's not true. I don't mean like you personally. You, Sarita, would never go out with me. I mean, no one would go out with me. Because... It's not true what's there. The internet? Or rather, it's not that it's not true, it's that most of it's not true, and I was young, what's on there? and I was never good at social cues, what really. What does it say? It says, um, that I... You know, it's not... Let's just call it a... You're, you're not a... Are you a criminal? Rapist criminal thing? Because that's so something that would happen to me? No, no. Not a rapist. Or a criminal. I was young, and I thought I loved this girl, and I followed her. You followed her. I followed her around school, and it was creepy and weird. And if anyone ever did it to a friend of mine, or if I had a daughter, if I'm lucky enough to have a daughter someday, I don't even know what You're I would do. You're a stalker. Do. No. Stalker implies obsession, intention of harm, and I had neither. I was just besotted for a few messed up months of my life a decade ago. But you're going to look me up, and it won't say I was a kid with a crush. It'll say I was a kid with a crush who was violent who ruined the lives of multiple women, who is everything that's wrong with men in America. You're going to see hundreds of posts and links that use my name and my face that have nothing to do with me or what I did when I was 17. He's going to terrify you, the me you meet online, because he terrifies me. So are you going to tell me your real name? It doesn't matter. You're never going to call me again, right? If I call, never going to return my calls. I might. Daryl. Daryl Lark. That was Adam Schalzi as Daryl and Kelsey Elise Rodriguez as Sarita in Raven Theater's Right to be Forgotten. Well, it's interesting because this incident took place 10 years ago. So we're talking about like 2013, right? So if, or like maybe 2011, 12, which is like peak Facebook time and peak yeah. like the evolution of social media in terms and blogs in terms of this. And I even look at it if I go back on my Facebook page and I'm like, what was I, why did I post so much? Like, well, who wanted to see full albums of my trips, you know? But it was this new thing, and we, again, even as adults, didn't understand the impact of it and the permanence of it. And so it is a reference. It is something that they're talking about there, and also that we talked about dramaturgically in terms of what time frame are we talking about. And, and this idea that when the blog was started and when it was all becoming very popular, people were just on there constantly, and there was no escaping it. And so even though we might have the ability to take someone down via the internet, and then we forget about it in the news cycle, that person doesn't. Right. While everyone has forgotten Lurking Lark, or actually the posts continue, but even so, while well, the incident seems distant to many people, 
to Daryl, it's ever present when it comes to getting his jobs and like people and you know uh, employers seeing it when they Google him, or especially if he wants to be a teacher or a professor, that's going to stick with you no matter what. And he wants to do research and. He wants to keep his name, and this is another idea, is like this idea of the value of a name and the name that you're given and legacy. And, and it's interesting because now we're even in an even faster news cycle, and while social media has a different presence now, it's still just as, it's now it's like we can just take down people faster. Yeah. <laughs> and the news cycle moves even faster, so is that good? Or, I don't know. It's like a natural disaster but you can't take it back if you get something wrong right but there's but there's also like something really valuable and important about it and in terms of knowing what's going on and awareness and being able to like inform yourself and educate yourself but there's also this really dangerous side to it especially for people under 18 who shouldn't be not necessarily held accountable but should be able to escape some of the mistakes of our youth so obviously one of those plays that I have a feeling like people leave talking with whoever they came with. Do you get a chance to engage with audiences at all? Only my family members that I send to the play. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I've, I've, you know, the show opened and I'm going back this weekend. Um, but I do hear people talking about it. You know, there's because there's really two sides to this argument, too, because there are things that Daryl did that were not good. And he really did hurt someone. And... So rightfully so, there is a record of what happened because, and I don't want to give away too much. So there is this, again, coming back to this idea of like, there are parts of the internet that are actually really beautiful and connect us and help us and inform us. The constitutional argument will hold very strong for many people, particularly because the right to free speech is so valuable and important in our country and something we hold up very much. There's also, though, this, this other argument, that, and, and alongside that argument is what he did, and he did do it, and we don't know to what you know, lengths it's true, but we know that there are parts of it that are definitely true, and it's hard to parse through that. But then there's the other side of why can't he just take it down, and why is it so hard to take down false information about yourself that exists forever? And I think this is the argument that people are butting heads against. Um, and it's not even necessarily a matter of taking sides. It's just a matter of like discussing how do you handle this massive thing that has grown in the age of technology. Like, how do we talk about it and how do we deal with it moving forward? Because we don't have any idea of the ethical impacts of it yet, um, nor will we for many years. But we have to talk about it in order to start figuring out solutions to it and how to how to help educate children in particular about how to deal with it. And I do, I just hope it sparks a conversation. You know, the thing I don't want is people to leave a play and be like, eh, you know, it's okay. But I mean, I, I want them to like it or hate it or just talk about it. Uh, and I think that the issues within this play are really urgent and important for us to start navigating. Sarah, thanks so much. No problem. Thanks for having me.
That was Sarah Gittenstein. She's the director of Raven Theater's production of Right to be Forgotten. It's been extended, so it's running for two more weeks through April 2nd. Go to raventheater.com for more information. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. One of the most powerful volcanic eruptions in human history is the subject of a traveling exhibition that recently went on display at the Museum of Science and Industry. In 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius spewed a deadly combination of gas, molten rock, and hot ash, releasing what's estimated to have been 1,000 times the thermal energy of two atomic bombs. The event destroyed several towns that were part of the Roman Empire, including Pompeii. The ancient Italian city is the focus of the new installation titled Pompeii the Exhibition. It features a unique mix of ancient artifacts and immersive experiences, all designed to give visitors a better understanding of what happened over 1900 years ago. I recently visited the exhibit and caught up with curator Dr. Vula Sardakis to talk about Pompeii the Exhibition. Well, Pompeii the Exhibition comes to us from WHE, which is World Heritage Exhibitions. This is uh, an organization that creates these large uh, exhibitions that travel the world. The, so this one, Pompeii the Exhibition, has been traveling for over 10 years. It's been to other institutions, and we're very excited, of course, to have it here at MSI in Chicago with, in some cases, some artifacts that have never been outside of Italy. So they do rotate through some of the artifacts and some of the experiences to create a more unique uh, experience for the particular institution in which it's going to, like us. The size and the amount of resources available at the Museum of Science and Industry made it a perfect venue to host the exhibit. That's part of what we do here at MSI is creating these real, immersive, interactive experiences. So um, that's a large part of what you're going to see when you come here, as well as uh, the over 150 precious artifacts that are here, all of which are real. They're not reproductions. They come to us from Naples, the Naples Archaeological Museum, and are uh, there to help recreate what life was like for these people who lived in the ancient world and in uh, ancient Roman Empire in Pompeii and the surrounding area before the cataclysmic eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which, you know, ironically, it, it destroyed everything around it, but managed to preserve everything in relatively pristine condition. Some people might think an exhibition on the eruption of Mount Vesuvius might be better suited for a history museum, but Sardakis points out there's actually a lot of science involved in the research of what happened in Pompeii, 79 AD. What happened exactly that led to the destruction of Pompeii? It wasn't lava. It was uh, through the series of what they call pyroclastic surges. You had rock and hot ash and toxic gases erupting out of Mount Vesuvius. And we want our visitors to come here and understand that process, understand exactly what happened. So there's a couple of spots throughout the exhibition that gets into sort of the more the science, the geology of 
of volcanoes. There we have a facilitator who's going to be walking around the exhibition um, to talk about what it is that archaeologists in our day and age use um, that is uh, LIDAR, that's the technology, uh, what it's called and it's available on apparently all the more recent phones and iPads that you can recreate sort of the 3D um, contour of what it whatever it is that you're looking at. So there's a discussion about the geology and the archaeology um, and, and definitely some media experiences that tell you more about exactly what happened when Mount Vesuvius erupted. I read there's like being described as a 4D type of film presentation. Is that about the eruption? Yeah, so to, towards the end of the exhibition, you're, you're, you're moving through, you start off in the private sphere of a household of an affluent uh, Pompeian citizen and then work your way into the public sphere of what people did in the baths and in the amphitheaters um, and uh, in the gladiatorial games. And at the very end of the exhibition is that 4D immersive experience in which it's a theater experience uh, where you actually get a really good sense of what it was like to experience the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And then after that is the room where we have our body casts. And it's incredibly interesting but haunting at the same time to see how these people died, whoever didn't leave Pompeii, who just fell on whatever it is that they were doing, just fell on the spot and died. And through these body casts, these plaster body casts, we have a better sense of what it is they were doing, how they were positioned. Were they holding something up to their mouths, trying to protect themselves? Were they wearing clothing? What kind of clothing? Everything comes out in the shape of these body casts, the way that they were cast. Sardakis hopes visitors who check out the exhibit leave with a better understanding of this important historical event. When you see all this, my hope is that our visitors get to see what things have changed over time and yet how things have not changed over time. So for instance, you'll see pots and pans and plates. Things sometimes don't change and yet other things will seem incredibly different to our visitors, I think. But it's, it's a chance to capture what life was like and how these people lived, worked, worshipped, entertained themselves. And it's, I think, uh, an incredible, very visual, visceral experience. That's Dr. Vula Sardakis. She's a curator at the Museum of Science and Industry. Pompeii, the exhibition, is on display through September 4th. You can find more details at msichicago.org slash Pompeii. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>